Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover, all for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 5,000 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 5,000. Enjoy. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at lesliemarshallshow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. And welcome and happy Thursday afternoon. You are listening to The Leslie Marshall Show with Michelle Jawando. Always great to be back with you, my Leslie Marshall family. And listen, you know I love hearing from you. So if you're going to go ahead and give us a call, make sure you reach out at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Or you can follow the conversation on Twitter at Michelle Jawando or at Leslie Marshall. So lots to talk about this week. Obviously, the Commander-in-Chief Forum. Um, some would say the loser of that case was not either one of the candidates, but actually Matt Lauer. When you are trending lowering the bar, which was a play on words to lowering the bar, you're having a pretty bad day. Um, but <laughs> you can also talk about the fact that Apple released their newest product yesterday, the iPhone 7 and AirPods was the only thing everybody was talking about on yesterday on Twitter. And last but definitely not least, for all my Trekkies out there, uh, Star Trek turns 50. And as I am sitting in studio with some of my guests, as we're talking about who your favorite, um, what your favorite Star Trek is, if you're going to call us today, I would like you to join in that conversation. Who's your favorite captain when you call in? So let's get right into it because there's lots to talk about. And my two guests in studio with me today, um, one is a regular friend of the show and the other is soon to be a regular. Um, Joining me in studio, Elizabeth Baylor. She is the director of the post-secondary education here at the Center for American Progress. She tweets at little B-E-T-H-B. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michelle. I'm I'm glad to be here. And I'll add in that my favorite captain is Jolene Picard. Oh, there you go. That's my boo, too. Um, Just FYI for all those listening today. Um, And also joining us once again back in studio is none other than Maggie Thompson, the executive director here of Generation Progress. She tweets at Maggie, M-A-G-G-I-E-K, Thompson. Welcome back, Maggie, to the show. Thanks so much, Michelle. 
And I have to say, I hope that I don't bias the audience against me, but I'm a Star Wars fan, so I don't know the answer <laughs> to this it's question. What is <laughs> Am I still Thank allowed you. to talk? Thank you. I don't, Maggie, you're you're on timeout. Uh, <laughs> you know, for all those listening, you know I have uh, three kids, so I uh, I am a timeout queen. So anyway, I'm excited to have both of you join me in studio, not talking about Star Trek, but something actually far more serious. Um, this week, ITT Tech shut down and it's left close to 35,000 students scrambling to figure out their next step after 130 of their campuses nationwide were suddenly shut down. Uh, Many of them have already been told their credits won't transfer and of course are concerned about repaying federal loans. This brings up the much larger conversation that I think is happening nationally about the role of for-profit education. Um, Back from my time on the Senate and Elizabeth is also uh, a former Senate staffer on the HELP Committee, um, we were having a, a larger conversation about the role of for-profit colleges. Um, what role did they play? We saw a massive diversion of resources go to these for-profit colleges very early on, and now many years later with the Department of Ed taking a larger and regulatory role, we're seeing some changes in the industry. But how do we get here, Elizabeth, and how significant is this shutdown? This shutdown is really important. Um, one of the reasons that we uh, ended up with so many students enrolled in for-profit colleges is that uh, during the Bush administration, the rules were relaxed and colleges were able to pay recruiters a bonus if they brought more students in the door. And it took some time when the Obama administration uh, came in to reverse those rules, but it all happened right at the same time as the recession. So just as people were headed back to college to get more skills and maybe get uh, more training for the next job, uh, these colleges were able to uh, fund legions of recruiters who pressured students, who manipulated students, who were trained to do things like press on their pain as a motivational factor. Mm. And people people are trying to seize the American dream and and they don't realize when they're talking to for-profit college recruiters that sometimes they're in a sales conversation, but they think they're in a college advising conversation. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, the industry boomed right after the recession. So Maggie, you know, you've been on this show uh, many times and particularly about student loan debt um, and run a higher ed, not debt project at Generation Progress. What does this mean for so many young people leaving ITT Tech now with massive student loans, but credits won't transfer and they don't know exactly what their next move is? Yeah, and you know, ITT put their students in just a terrible position. And, you know, this is a school that for decades was practicing unfair, deceptive practices with students, treating them, like Elizabeth said, like financial assets, just working to get them in the door and thinking about their shareholders. So for students that are current students that were currently enrolled in ITT Tech as of Tuesday when it collapsed, they're in a terrible position. But Really, the, the thing that we are telling the people that are calling our team and emailing our team to do is to go online and fill out, 
fill out what's called a closed school discharge form. If you're a current student at ITT right now, and there are tens of thousands of them, you are eligible to have your loans forgiven, get back any money that you paid out of pocket, and if you have any dings on your credit score because of an ITT loan, then those will be removed as well. So that's the closed school discharge, and that's what we're recommending that these students do. But, you know, this, this fraud, it's not as if it happened just this year. This has been going on for a long time. So, you know, we talk about the, you know, almost 40,000 students that were currently enrolled, but there are tens of thousands of students from recent years at ITT that were subject to the same practices. So I would just really say, you know, this was a policy failure to allow these schools to deceive so many students for so long. And if you're a past student of ITT, hang on to your documents. If you feel like you were ripped off from this school, we want to fight for you too, because it's not just those current students that deserve to be made at least partially whole after this collapse. So Elizabeth, you know, while we see ITT shutting down, what really spurred uh, this shutdown? You know, I, I've heard that there were federal, state, and federal investigations including actions with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the Securities Exchange Commission, and there was also some issue around compliance with the accrediting agency? Yeah. So, as you can tell, you you went through a litany there. ITT was facing problems in a lot of different fronts. Um, uh, their accreditor actually was... Uh, it is in the process of being derecognized by the Department of Education for not doing a good enough job at policing uh, the quality. And wow. so uh, uh, hoping to, to, to stop that from happening, the accreditor put ITT on what's called show cause, which is basically the highest level of warning that says we might actually revoke your accreditation. But the thing that that immediately precipitated their close is the fact that the Department of Education said, we're not going to let students take out loans to go to your school anymore. And I think that was a really good thing because when students sign up to go to college, they intrinsically know that the federal, that if the federal government is going to let me borrow money from them to go to college, that that means they think someone in the federal government is making sure that the company or the school that they're attending is financially secure and that students who go there have a reasonable chance of success. Mm-hmm. And so the Department of Education's reputation is somewhat on the hook here. That's right. And given the fact that there were so many aggrieved parties lining up um, to say that ITT wasn't acting ethically, the federal government said, yeah, and we're not going to let our money go, go, go to this place either. They are. So, you know, we're getting ready to go to break. And if you're listening on the Leslie Marshall show, this is Michelle Jawando in studio with Elizabeth Baylor and Maggie Thompson. When we come back from break, one of the things that I want to ask is there was for a time this idea that for profits were actually trying to push traditional institutions to update their coursework, to provide courses online, um, that they were supposed to be in some ways on the vanguard of innovation. Um, and we know that there is a uh, definite crisis in higher education writ large. So how does this play into that larger picture? Uh, we'll be back after the break. I want to make sure you get a chance to call in 888-6-LESLIE. This is Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE.
Welcome back. Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great to be with you. I am back in studio with two terrific guests, Elizabeth Baylor, director of the post-secondary education program here at the Center for American Progress. Also in studio with me, Maggie Thompson, executive director of Generation Progress. So before the break, we started to talk about the role of ITT Tech shutting down this week, for-profit colleges, and the larger kind of conversation about what higher education looks like today. And Elizabeth, I know this is your specialty. There is a conversation. I think as I look, I see my three daughters, I look at the cost of education and I'm like, okay, someone's scholarship, someone gets all of our money and the baby, good luck, figure it out. (laughs) So what do you tell parents? And I think that's why there was some appeal, I think, in maybe forcing um, higher ed institutions to kind of revise, and maybe that was some of the re- early reasons for for-profit education, right? Yeah. Um, so one of the things for-profits did very quickly was adopt uh, online education. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there are some concerns that they didn't do it uh, with a lot of quality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the GAO did a, a, a little investigation in a few years ago in which they pretended to be students and took some courses at for-profit colleges, online courses. And one of the criticisms that came out of that GAO report was that, you know, it's hard for colleges to figure out who's cheating, who's giving who's giving real work mm. uh, in this distance uh, format. That's actually true across a lot of higher ed right now. So I think higher ed's going through a big transition. Mm-hmm. We have this new resource, the internet, in the last 20, 25 years, and in a hundred years, we'll have figured out how to factor the internet into higher education and how to use it as a force to reduce prices. But one of the things is the for-profits adapted very quickly, used online, but they didn't actually translate the savings onto students. Onto their students. They pocketed it as profit. Wow. And so that's one of the issues that uh, is concerning. But in regards to the overall cost of college, the real problem facing families today it has been you know, the decline in state state investment in mm-hmm. public colleges. Mm-hmm. 75% of American students go to a public college in, 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 our, in our system. And um, during the recession, they, they, cut, they cut funding very dramatically. And, you know, CAP has this great little chart. I'll tweet it out in a few minutes. But it just shows the decline in state investment mirrored with an increase in tuition dollars funding universe, universities. But Maggie, how do we push higher ed institutions? You know, um, the the reality is we are creating an environment where millennials disproportionately are affected more than any other generation with massive student loan debt. I look at my husband and I as we try to figure out now child care on one hand, elder care on another, and then dealing with our student loan debt. And we were fortunate most of our student loans are around law school, but that is not the story for so many people. Um, And the hope is one day we'll pay them back. (laughs) But how how do you have these conversations and, and what do we do? 
Yeah, I think that really the debt has gotten to such a point that we're, we are at a crisis. It's impacting other parts of our economy. And I think that the way that we have talked about this on our campaign, and I think that ITT is so important to this, is this idea that higher education is a public good. And when you run a school like a business, you're going to have problems. Most of these for-profit colleges were spending more money on marketing and advertising just to get butts in the seats so they could get that money than they were um, sort of incentivized to actually spend money on teaching and investing in students. You know, and that's, that is a model that is the worst in for-profit education. But I also think that as a community, we have to not just be asking for lower costs in higher ed, but really demanding that our institutions, whether they're nonprofit, for-profit, whatever their status, aren't behaving like businesses. Mm. What are, how, how can an institution that has a 12% return on their endowment in one year still raise tuition on students and families by 7%? So I think that really ITT, I would say that this is the edge of a much bigger issue. Mm -hmm. How are we spending higher education dollars? How are they being invested? And how do we make sure that's a good value for students? So we're not just saddling people with debt and sending them on their way. Schools really need to have some skin in the game when it comes to how this money is being spent. So, Elizabeth, what happens next? I mean, we we know in the particular situation, ITT Tech is shutting down. What happens to the larger for-profit college community? Um, Well, I think it persists for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Obama administration has implemented new rules to make sure that colleges, that students are able to show that... um, they got something out of their education, so they're going to start measuring uh, the income for students who have left a college and comparing that to the amount of student debt they have. And if a, if a student had to take on too much debt and and are not earning uh, enough money that they could pay it off reasonably, uh, the the government's going to start saying that you you have to uh, close down that program. And so I think that a closer attention paying closer attention to whether or not students are faring well after they finish a program is a really important thing. So, Maggie, how do we move forward? You know, if you are looking at kind of the latest, um, you have young people from all across the country who are part of the Generation Progress community. Um, What do you do? What do you advise them to do? And how do people move on? Yeah, you know, I think that one of the things that we've done is, first, we got to help these 43 million people who have this debt. They're programs where you can lower your payments or get loan forgiveness if you work in public service. And I think we've found the most powerful way to work with this community of borrowers, which is a new and growing constituency, is first you got to sort of help people where they're at. That's right. If they are in default, if they cannot make their monthly payments, if they're in trouble, we got to help sort of throw them a lifeline with some of those programs. And then I think next is activating people. I think that, you know, the real power to get disruptive change and reform in our higher education system is by combining things that will engage borrowers, assistance for them, with sort of a vision for a different future where higher education is a public good, where you do have a public school, you can go Mm -hmm. to debt-free. And I think that laying out that vision really clearly and leveraging not just the 43 million people that have debt, but also parents, people that want to, you know, save up to send their own kids to school to really demand this. You know, it's not a radical idea. 30 years ago, we had this. So let's just get back there. Absolutely. Um, Elizabeth, Maggie, you both have been wonderful guests. Um, the time goes by way too fast when you're having fun and, and sending out good information. If you want to continue to stay in touch with my two amazing guests, you can follow Elizabeth on Twitter at LittleBethB. Oh, that should be your rap name if you ever drop <laughs> uh, drop an album. 
old Maggie Thompson. You can find her on Twitter at Maggie K. Thompson. Thank you, ladies, for joining the show. And when we come back, we will have a conversation with two dynamic co-directors of N-Rape on campus. This is Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back. You're listening to Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great being with you. And if you were around for our last half hour, we had great guests talking about the shutdown of ITT Tech and the student loan crisis and kind of staying in the back-to-school higher education space. I'm excited about the next two guests who are joining me. I have to tell you a quick story. So for many of our listeners, you know um, that I am a former Senate staffer, uh, was uh, chief counsel to Senator Kirsten Gillibrand from New York. I represent New York all day. And... Working on and working for a dynamic senator from a huge state, you got a lot of different people that come into your office. Um, but these next two guests, these two amazing young ladies who I, I'm not even sure they were finished with school when I met them, but um, walked into our office and fundamentally changed a lot of the work we were doing on campus sexual assault. And so I'm so proud of the work that they've done since then. Um, and proud to call them colleagues and friends. Joining me for the next 30 minutes, none other than Annie Ng Clark. She's the executive director of End Rape on Campus. She tweets at A-E-L-I-Z-A-B, Elizabeth Clark. Also, Andrea Alpino. She is the co-founder of End Rape on Campus, and she tweets at and Andrea actually. Ladies, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show with Michelle Joando. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for having us. Hi, guys. <laughs> Great to hear your voice. So I miss you. I haven't been able to give you a hug, so we're going to have to do this again so we get this right. Um, but the one of the reasons why I really wanted to have you both on, um, for many of our listeners, they may not be as familiar. Uh, sexual assault on college campuses is a huge problem, and it's something that deserves our immediate attention. Uh, studies show that one in five women and one in 16 men are sexually assaulted while in college, and 90 percent of victims don't report the assault. Um, you both have been outspoken leaders, are authors, um, 
advocates and activists in this fight to end campus sexual assault. You know, there are so many, including myself, who are so inspired by your work. But tell our listeners uh, why you started your organization. So um, our, our organization and Rave on Campus, um, we essentially started out of necessity. And when we came forward with our own stories, we knew that it was not about us or about one school or about one case. It was much, much larger. And as soon as, you know, um, that became very public, many more students started reaching out. And so we started in Rave on Campus um, as a way to sort of organize all the calls and, and things that we were getting. And that project, along with The Hunting Ground, which is our documentary on, on Netflix and the book We Believe You, um, sort of showed different aspects of our activism. And I don't know, Andrea, if you want to speak to more of that. Yeah, the next step for us was to um, really help amplify the voice that we just don't see in traditional media. And, and that was what we wanted to do with our book, We Believe You, Survivors of Campus Sexual Assault in general. And in this book, we have over 30 narratives of survivors of all different races and sexualities and national origins, as well as just different outcomes, like, you know, did they report, did they not report? And, and we want folks to know that survivor stories are very complex. Um, anyone can be sexually assaulted, and anyone can decide to call themselves a survivor or not. And you have people in the book who will one day be a victim, one day wake up a survivor, and sometimes go back and be in between. And that's what survivorhood is. It's not this linear path in which, you know, you go from being a normal person to a victim to a survivor to a heroine. And, and it's unfortunate the media talks about sexual violence in a way that's so black and white, but it's not. It, it's so much more complex. And these are real people who have incredibly powerful stories who we're just not hearing from in traditional media. So, you know, for our listeners who are just joining, you are listening to Annie E. Clark and Andrea Pino, co-founders of N-Rape on Campus. So, you know, when I met you both, we were at the beginning of a conversation about uh, sexual violence and in particular looking at college campuses. Um, but we had just come out of a major fight on Capitol Hill around military sexual assault. And it's interesting, last night, one of the questions at the Commander-in-Chief Forum, this question came up from one of the veterans in the audience. And it was interesting, Donald Trump was quoted one of his tweets that looked at, uh, he said something to the effect of basically, uh, well, when you put men and women together, what do you expect? Now, he pivoted in the commander-in-chief forum yesterday, but what it occurred to me is that I think for so many people, there is constantly this sense of kind of guilt and shame associated with men and women and kind of our relationships um, with one another that in some ways, justifies rape as a part of our culture or creating a space so that we think that it should be a part of our culture. Yeah, I actually think Mr. Trump's comments are a very um, unfortunate reflection on part of how we raise our young men and boys in this country. And we don't talk about sex. And if we don't talk about sex, then how are we supposed to talk about consent and sexual assault and all of these things? And I think, you know, if we're waiting until uh, people enter the military or people enter college to have this conversation, it's way too late. And we need to start having a conversation about respect and bodily autonomy and, you know, consent much, much before that. And, 
you know, I, I very much disagree that this is um, an inevitable part of when you have people together. We also know um, that men are victims of sexual violence as well as members of the LGBT community. And also same-sex violence occurs even if you don't identify um, as lesbian, gay, um, bisexual, transgender. And actually some of those rates are higher. So um, I, I think there's a lot of education to be done as evidenced by Mr. Trump's comments last night. Andrea. So I want to actually talk about um, marginalized populations more that I think unfortunately are just not talked about. Um, yesterday was actually the four-year anniversary of the Reagan murder of Faith Hedgepath, who was a student at the University of North Carolina when I was a junior there. And um, to this day, we have no idea what happened to her. Um, there have been, you know, kind of dissonant talk that there's been suspects and no one's been called in. And, you know, unfortunately, the, the rates of, of missing and murdered Native women are, you know, higher than, than any other race combined. And this is a problem actually around the world, that there are missing and murdered Native women and, and governments aren't doing enough. And I think, unfortunately, we're just not hearing about marginalized populations. We're not hearing about women of color on campus and the day-to-day oppressions they have to deal with, not just in regards to sexual violence, but just in regards to racism and other barriers to success in education. And we're just not hearing about these things. We're not hearing about what it's like to be, you know, students of color on campus. And, and how is it that these day-to-day oppressions on college campuses are leading to fewer women of color learning for ethics, fewer women of color in the STEM field? You know, this, this leads to bigger barriers in the workforce that we're just not hearing about. And it's unfortunate that it's just made off as being, you know, gender wars and something that is just a mistake. And I think if one thing that the Brock Turner case um, has really brought up is that it's not a mistake. It's not something that, you know, someone can just take back. Tell our listeners who may not be as familiar with the Brock Turner case. Yeah, so the Brock Turner case, he he was a swimmer at Stanford University um, who raped an unconscious woman, and the case went viral. Um, one of the many reasons it went viral is because um, there were two witnesses, two foreign students, and um, it was a unanimous um, conviction, and the judge later sentenced him to six months, and he only served three months of that sentence. So um, it, it's caused global outrage, but unfortunately there are many cases like this um, every day, and, and many rapists don't even get to spend three days in prison. Unfortunately, it's just a crime that's rarely prosecuted and much less do rapists get convicted for it. So if you were just joining us on the Leslie Marshall show with Annie E. Clark, who's the executive director of NRAPE on Campus, and Andrea Alpino, who's the co-founder of NRAPE on Campus, when we get back from the break, one of the things that I really want to talk about is what I thought was a seminal cultural moment. Um, I know both of you had an opportunity to join Lady Gaga, who set out the soundtrack for The Hunting Ground, but what that meant as a cultural touchstone and how we change the culture to understand these issues. This is Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after the break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back. 
Welcome back. This is Michelle Tawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. If you want to join in the conversation, go ahead and give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. And joining me again for a conversation much needed, particularly as many freshmen enter onto college campuses, uh, Annie E. Clark, Executive Director of NRAPE on Campus, and Andrea Alpino, Co-Founder of NRAPE on Campus. They're all also the co-authors of the book We Believe You, a collection of 36 stories of campus sexual assault. So now as we head back to school, I wanted to just flag something that you, you talked about quite often in much of your advocacy that this period where freshmen are entering college campuses or underclassmen, that this is a particularly vulnerable moment uh, for students all across the country. Can you share with our listeners why? Annie? Yeah, so what we know about this time period when students go back to school, um, particularly before Halloween, Thanksgiving, is something known as the red zone, and that is because a lot of sexual assault occurs in these first few weeks. Um, And I think it's really important um, for your listeners to know, um, you know, we get a lot of questions like, how do I protect my daughter or my son or somebody going off to college? I think, you know, the first thing that we tell a lot of people is no matter what happens, if something happens to you and you did not consent, it is not your fault. And we hear a lot of safety tips about not walking alone or, you know, um, making sure you are in well-lit areas. And I think what we're trying to do is sort of shift the conversation to put the burden back on the perpetrator Mm -hmm. and to say that, you know, you can do everything right and still be assaulted. And so I think the focus here, it should be on um, young men. And while we know men are victims as well, the majority of perpetrators are men, a very small percentage of them. And so to impress upon them that they should not assault people. And I know that sounds very basic, but for years our rhetoric has been how to protect young women, and we've ignored the other half of the population. And so I think it's really important, you know, to say, you know, if something happens, it's not your fault, but also for all students to know what their rights are and to know that they have the right to a safe um, education that is free from violence. Drea? Drea. Uh, that I think one of the main reasons why we think of sexual assault as being available is really because of the way the media talks about it. You know, they talk about really mo- most crime stories as being episodic, as these, these singular instances in which something must have gone wrong for this to have happened. But in reality, it is incredibly common. It's, you're more likely than not to know someone who's experienced sexual violence, even if they haven't told you. And I think it's because of the secrecy and because of the way the media cover these stories, and we just don't think it's as often as it is. And, you know, I um, I experienced doubt during my own experience um, when I told friends. They, they really couldn't believe it either. And, it, and it's not to say they were malicious. I don't think they were. It's just to think that it's easier to assume that something mm-hmm. happened than it is to realize that sexual assault is happening to everyone, and, and it's happening at a rate that is basically epidemic. So, Annie, you know, when I think about kind of the moment um, at, I believe it was the Grammys, or no, the Oscars, actually, um, when Lady Gaga was on stage and it was a powerful cultural moment um, talking the soundtrack to the hunting ground, Lady Gaga has the signature sound, and she brought survivors on stage with her for that moment. 
I felt like it was important for a few reasons. Obviously, someone with the visibility um, of Lady Gaga telling her story and connecting to this work, but also for us to have a conversation at one of the major cultural moments in the arts and entertainment community as a way to bring attention to a major issue that often is not talked about, I thought had some powerful symbolism. Absolutely. And I'll let Andrea talk a little bit about what that moment meant. But um, if you have listeners who didn't view that, so what happened, um, there's a documentary called The Hunting Ground. It's now on Netflix. And the song um, that Diane Warren wrote, Lady Gaga performed, it's called Till It Happens to You, and it's about sexual violence. And so um, last year at the Oscars, you had 50 survivors of sexual violence, very diverse from all you know, all around our country, um, different stories, different experiences. Some of them were in the film The Hunting Grounds. A lot of them were also in the book We Believe You. Um, and some of them actually were sharing publicly that they were a survivor of violence for the first time. So it was an incredibly powerful moment, personally, mm-hmm. for all of us there on stage with um, Gaga. But also, I think it was this cultural moment because Hollywood doesn't acknowledge this very much, and I think you're starting mm-hmm. to see more come out with Cosby, um, with what's happening surrounding Kesha's case, um, Lady Gaga saying she's a survivor herself. I mean, you're, you're starting to see this, and I think that there was this cultural touchstone that I'll let Andrea elaborate a little bit more about. One of the things I studied when I was a student at Carolina is, is what is it that makes issues go viral, and how is it that, that the way cases are talked about, the way stories are talked about, leads to some type of political action or inaction. And the way we see with, with um, you know, just the, the Black Lives Matter movement, that really has run parallel to this movement as well. You know, both of these movements have taken off around the same time. Is that oftentimes it's this one big cultural moment in which um, those people who are not already tuned into the issue, you know, might not be activists, might not be survivors themselves, are in a sense made aware of this. You know, people who tune into the Oscars are not the ones who watch Demography Now, are not the ones, you know, who listen to radio shows that oftentimes talk about this. And that's Mm -hmm. just the reality of it. But we're trying to change that. We're trying to change that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I was actually referring more to NPR. You know, NPR has has, uh, done a couple of investigative pieces on this. And it's just the reality that my friends from high school are not the ones who are listening to NPR, are not the ones who are paying attention to this. Um, and I had so many people reach out to me after watching the Oscars. A lot of them clearly didn't know why I was on stage and were incredibly confused um, <laughs> as to why I was at the Oscars. Uh, and that's actually a lot of people. They had a lot of people thought that we were actors. They thought that we were paid talent. Uh, you know, there were all these rumors going on that we were dancers. Um, and when people realized that there were 50 survivors on stage, you know, it, it was this moment that. Um, you know, I had actually talked to my professor about in 2013. You know, he mm-hmm. had talked about, you know, what if we could have 50, 100 survivors on stage to show that it couldn't really happen to anyone. And it happened, and it happened on arguably one of the biggest stages ever. Right. Um, I think it was also so powerful that you've seen both the president and the vice president come out so forcefully in support, both with their support of our It's On Us campaign, but continuing to lend their voices. So with our remaining minute, um, Annie and Andrea, if you can each give me 30 seconds, what does the future look like in this space and where do we go from here? So, Drea, I'm going to let you go first and then, Annie, you take it home. 
You know, I think this issue really is catapulting to the national agenda, and it's gotten to, you know, to really get attention of a lot of important people, and I think Pearson is a big person behind why this issue has gotten so prominent. But I think we need to hold more media accountable. We need to start holding media that talk about Brock Turner as just being a swimmer or refuse to talk about Bill Cosby or other very prominent cases and actually start talking about this as a crime and not as something that's alleged. Mm-hmm. Annie? I, I think, you know, we've come a long way, but we still have much further to go. And I think what Andrea is saying about media representation of survivors, realizing that it's not just this one type of narrative, one type of story, but happening everywhere is really important. And I think, you know, the the main thing is to realize that, you know, since the 1970s, 1980s, we have the vocabulary to have the conversation we're having right now, Michelle, Mm -hmm. because of civil rights leaders. Mm -hmm. And so we're hoping to pass the torch on to other young people who might be listening, to pass that on, to change things, and to make sure, um, I guess the last thing I always say is to any survivor listening, just to know that you're not alone and it's not your fault. And then the title of our book, We Believe You, because I think those three things are so powerful and so often not said. Thank you so much, Annie E. Clark, Executive Director and Rape on Campus, Andrea Alpino, Co-Founder and Rape on Campus. Definitely follow these two young leaders. Um, it was amazing being with you another day on the Leslie Marshall Show. I'll be back next week and always love being here with some of the best listeners on radio. That's it for me, Michelle Jawanda on the Leslie Marshall Show. Until the next time, take care. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. How to show up with Coca-Cola Energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola Energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love.